So one of the central challenges across the life sciences, but certainly within anthropogeny, is the question of how this scrawny animal has become, become the undisputed master of the planet. <laughs> we're hardly much to look at in our, we're not very physically imposing. We're not particularly swift or strong. Um, we don't have sophisticated onboard weaponry like talons or claws or fangs or poison. And we, don't, we haven't evolved fancy tricks to evade our predators like camouflage or flight. But of course, there is one very special physical adaptation that marks us as a species, and that's the three pounds of flesh that sits between your ears, the human brain. Now, the central challenge in trying to understand how the human brain has made us special is that unlike wings and talons and poisons, the brain itself doesn't interact much with the world around it. In fact, things, it's pretty safe to say that things have gone horribly wrong for you if your brain is in direct contact with, with the environment. <laughs> Instead, it's the quality of mind that the brain endows us with that changes the way in which we interact with the environment around us that surely says much about what makes us unique as a species. Over the past 15 to 20 years, there's been a resurgence or renaissance among many different branches of science, ranging from biology to anthropology to psychology, that's begun to look at one particular way in which the human brain changes the way we interact with the environment. And in particular, one, one kind of object out there that seems to be, um, that, this, that the human brain seems to, to treat in a particularly special way that's very different than our closest uh, primate cousins. And that is specifically the way in which we interact with other conspecifics, other humans. So unlike most other animals, humans are very much willing to subvert our own immediate desires for the global, the, the longer-term welfare of those around us. Um, we engage in very special forms of communication that are both symbolic and recursive. Our predilections for teaching lead to um, the development of uh, long-term culture. I would argue that underlying many of these different and varied social abilities is a fundamental ability that humans have uh, evolved, which is the ability to understand what's going on inside the mind of another person. So unlike what you might expect from reading science fiction, we don't need special headgear or mutations to understand the goings on of other minds. In fact, we very readily traffic in the mental states of those around us. When asked to explain why it is that someone is doing something or to make sense of another person, we first avail ourselves not of the actual physical movements of that person, but much more readily of the invisible mental states uh, and goings on of that person's uh, mind. What that person might be thinking or feeling, what that person's goals are, what his hopes, desires, or personality traits might be. So the question that many of us um, throughout developmental psychology, uh, within neuroscience, um, even in anthropology and biology have been interested in is how exactly humans are pulling off this feat of mind reading. How it is, how, what, what gives rise to our uh, abilities to mentalize or to engage in theory of mind. I think as one central starting point, we wanna ask the question of whether these skills, the skills I bring to bear when I'm interacting with you, the skills that I bring to bear when I try to make sense of what's happening inside your head, whether those are piggybacking or somehow isomorphic with the other kinds of things that I do in my everyday life. So I think um, I particularly like this quote from Sarah Jane Blakemore who asks very succinctly, whether general cognitive processes, those that are involved broadly in perception, in language, in memory, attention, whether those are sufficient to explain social competence, 
or whether we have to do something quite unparsimonious, something that would make Occam turn over in his grave, and instead posit that there might be specific processes that are special to social interaction. And this has been the core mission of many people's um, research, and I'm going to um, talk about a couple of the ways in which um, people have attempted to get at this. One of, in my mind, one of the most fruitful ways of addressing this question of whether what we bring to the table when we interact with others, whether that's the same or different than when, what we bring to the table when we interact with any other objects and entities out there. Um, one fruitful approach to that has been to look at the underlying brain mechanisms that give rise to our abilities in the social world. Before I, before I say much about why I think brain imaging is, has been useful for this, um, let me just give you um, an analogy from the world of evolutionary biology. So biologists, some, some biologists, have been quite concerned with trying to understand and uh, understand the relationship among various different animals. And until fairly recently, what they had to go on, starting from you know, Darwin on, was simply the morph what it is they could observe about those animals in terms of their morphological characteristics, what their bodies look like, and what kinds of behavior they engaged in. More recently, biologists have been able to avail themselves of a, a totally different kind of technique that allows them to look at the underlying physical substrates that give rise to those morphologies and those behaviors, and that is looking at the genes that um, make up each of these um, different animals. And what they've discovered is, much to their surprise, many animals that they had classified as being distantly, distantly related, for example, these two crabs, are in fact they're close, they're, uh, each other's closest relatives. So even though the, just looking at the bodies of these two animals might lead you to believe that there are in fact wild differences in the lineages of these two species, in fact the genetic analysis tells us that they are in fact close cousins. The reverse has also happened. Any taxonomist worth her salt would surely have classified these two lizards as members of the same species, but genetic analysis tells us that they're actually quite distantly related from, to each other. Why am I bringing this up in the context of brain imaging? In many ways, this is what, the, this is what brain imaging gives to those of us who are interested in understanding how the, mind, the, how the mind is organized. What it allows us to do is to take two behaviors, or two cognitive phenomena, if you will, phenomena, if you will and understand by, look, by looking at the underlying physical substrates, that is the actual parts of the brain that give rise to these behaviors, we can say something about the degree to which the two are related to one another. The assumption is that if very different brain regions are involved in two seemingly similar behaviors, that's pretty good evidence that, in fact, they're, they're being generated by totally different kinds of processes, different kinds of mental recipes. Just like the, the geneticists would see totally different genetic markers and say that these are, in fact, animals that are distantly related. And the inverse is also true. If we see two things that humans can do um, that seem quite different from each other, but in fact, when we look at their brains, their brains are doing the exact same thing in those cases, that's pretty good evidence that, in fact, these two seemingly different behaviors are, in fact, quite closely related to one another. And so that's the kind of work that I want to just briefly sketch out for you today. So let me give you an example of how cognitive neuroscientists have used these assumptions to try to understand something about the relation between social cognition and other forms of thought. And I'm going to take as my case example the very well-known false belief test. This is a test originally developed um, for use in young children, and it goes like this. There are many versions of the test, but this is sort of the standard version. So a uh, participant is introduced to two actors. This is um, Sally and Anne. For reasons that remain murky even to this day, Sally puts her ball in a, in a nearby basket and then decides to leave the room. Her nefarious friend Anne, unbeknownst to her, to, to Sally, moves the ball into a new location, undisclosed location, um, in this case, a box. And what the participant is asked is something like, when Sally comes back, where will she first look for the ball? So most people in this room would say something like, 
uh, would probably reason at some level to yourself that, well, since Sally's ignorant of the fact that the ball has been relocated, she's bound to look in the place where she still believes it is. But what developmental psychologists observe is a very interesting uh, trajectory over the lifespan where most three-year-olds will say that she'll look for the, the place where the ball actually is and it's not generally until around the fourth birthday that children can correctly tell you that Anne is likely uh, to look uh, to, to act on the on the basis of her erroneous beliefs about the, the state of the world okay some of the very first and most interesting insights about the relation of this kind of task to other sorts of things that we do came from work not in brain imaging, but from earlier work on autistic individuals. So these are data um, from Alan Leslie showing that uh, in this particular case, if you take typically developing children, um, in this case around their uh, fourth birthday, roughly 80% of this sample passed the false belief test. That is correctly said that, that Sally is likely to look in the location where the ball, uh, where she still believes the ball is. And what these researchers found was that if you take um, autistic individuals, the rates of giving the correct answer plummet. And in fact, what autistic individuals are most likely to do is to tell you that she's going to look in the place where the ball actually happens to be. Now, what makes this particularly interesting is that, that that particular pattern of behavior doesn't seem to be generated by the just global deficits in autistic individuals, many of whom are broadly developmentally delayed, because this study also had another group of participants, those with Down syndrome. Um, and uh, in this particular case, the IQ of those individuals was significantly lower than even that of the autistic individuals, and they're perfectly able to pass this task. That is, they're, correctly, they're perfectly able to use what they understand about the mental states of this protagonist to say that she's likely to look where she thinks the ball actually is. Sometime after that, um, individuals developed a really wonderful control for this kind of task. Because as you notice, there's lots of stuff going on in that task. You have to pay attention to what's happening with the actors, and there's this funny change. Um, and so you want to be able to rule out the possibility that all of this happens to, to it's just some kind of incidental aspect of the task uh, as, as it was developed. So what researchers did was to um, create versions of, the, of, these, of these stories that didn't rely on understanding the mental states of other people, but where there was still some outdated representation uh, of, of the world. So as an example, imagine that I'm um, back home in Boston and I happen to have gone out uh, apple picking the other day. It's a beautiful fall thing to do. Um, and, I, and I snap a photograph of this, um, of this particularly lush looking apple. Now, as I turn to leave, a stiff wind comes and blows this apple off the, off the branch. The question that you can, you can ask an observer is when the photograph is developed, or when somebody looks at the photograph on her, on her iPod, um, what is it that the photograph is going to show? Is it going to show the apple on the branch or off the branch? And of course, the correct answer in this case is the photograph is an inaccurate, erroneous, um, outdated representation of the physical world. And so it's bound to show the, the apple as it once was on the branch, not as the world actually is, which is the apple on the ground. And what's beautiful about this is that it's a wonderful logical control for the case that I just showed you with Sally and Anne. There is some change in the world out there, and there is an outdated representation of that world. In the Sally Ann case, that's, that's an outdated representation of, uh, that, that is the person's beliefs about how the world is or should be. In the case of the apple, it's something to do with uh, physical representation. There are many versions of these stories involving antiquated maps or outdated satellite images. You, you get the picture.
So the first thing that, that, that researchers noticed was that there's a very interesting pattern of results when you run the same kinds of autistic individuals that fail on the false belief task. So these are other data showing on the left that autistic individuals fail at the false belief versions of this. But if you look on the right, where the, exactly the same logical structure is given to them, but they're no longer required to understand anything about the goings on of another person's mind, autistic individuals do quite well and in fact in many cases do better than normally developing individuals. I'm going through this with the false belief task because I think it's one of some of the most beautiful data to emerge from the neuroimaging literature. So my colleague at MIT, Rebecca Sachs, has been um, looking at the brain basis of, um, of performance on both the false, false belief task and the false photograph task. And when you run individuals on both of those, when you scan their brains as they're performing both kinds of tasks, what you show very consistently is a, a, is a pattern of brain activity, which is a set of brain regions that, com that comprises the medial prefrontal cortex. So this is a part of your brain immediately behind your forehead in line with your nose, um, the posterior medial parietal cortex, so this is sort of under the, the crown of your head, and then regions of the temporal parietal junction, um, sort of right behind your temples, if you will. And what's beautiful about this is um, starting out today's um, symposium, Donald Pfaff uh, noted that um, there's actually incredible heterogeneity in the way that researchers talk about and study theory of mind. And I think there are bad sociological reasons why that's the case, but there's, there's also incredibly good scientific reasons for why that's the case. And that is that no matter how scientists have studied theory of mind, no matter how it is they asked subjects to make inferences about the mental states of other people, this is the same set of brain regions that we see as being more active in the social mental case than in the physical case. So you can ask subjects to do things like, you know, tell me how happy this per person on the left was to have his photograph taken. It doesn't matter. You will see this um, particular set of brain regions. You can ask questions about what would a historical figure like Christopher Columbus know about the technology in this room. You still see these same brain regions. You can ask questions not just about the mental states of other people, but about any entity that has mental states. You can ask questions about what dogs know or whether dogs, uh, what the personality characteristics of dogs are, and you will once again see these brain regions as being more active. And you can even do it with displays that simply imply that there's an agent there. So for those of you who know the hydrant symbol display, um, if you just look at geometric shapes moving in such a way as, uh, as that, uh, su such to imply that there are people with goals, that's sufficient to trigger um, activity in these brain regions. So I like to think of this as um, among the probably half dozen most consistent effects to come out of brain imaging over the last 15 years. Um, and there are now many dozens of studies looking at comparisons between tasks that ask subjects to make inferences about the goings on of another person's mind. And compared to almost any other um, control task, this is a, sweat, a suite of brain regions that is um, more, ac more active. Now in just the last few minutes that I have, oh, so, so what does this say? So I think what this, argues for um, is, the, is that, in fact, what we bring to the table in terms of our cognitive processes when we try to make sense of other people seems to look very different than the other kinds of general pur purpose, domain general sorts of processes that we might use in the rest of our everyday life. So making an inference about the unseen mental states of the person next to you doesn't seem to to bear much in common with making inferences about other sorts of unseen entities. And other work that uh, we and others have, have done, remembering stuff about the personality characteristics of other people doesn't seem to bear much in, in common with remembering other kinds of things out there um, in, in the world. Using what you know generally about how people operate, uh, sort of your sort of semantic knowledge about um, other people's characteristics, doesn't seem to have much in common with, using, with other sorts of semantic knowledge that you might have about the objects um, that you encounter. 
So let me just close by, by giving you one sort of interesting piece of data that I think is mainly speculative, but I think tells a sort of potentially very interesting part of the story. So keep in mind this particular image showing the three brain regions that I've um, been talking about. And then I'll show you this other um, image where you see the exact same brain regions. Now what's interesting is this image was generated by researchers who had absolutely no interest as far as I can tell in social cognition. They were looking at totally different things. Um, in fact, they weren't even interested in what the brain was doing when you ask subjects to do something fun or complex or interesting. Instead, these researchers were simply interested in what the, brain, what the human brain looks like when it's allowed to sort of rest and relax into some state of baseline equilibrium. And what the researchers found is that if you measure metabolic activity, oxygen and glucose in various different brain regions, there's some brain regions that are very tonically hungry and others that are relatively quiet. And the regions that continue to sort of chug along, continue to sort of do whatever it is they normally do in everyday life when subjects are allowed to rest, turn out to be the same brain regions that are involved in understanding other, other minds. What does this mean? It means potentially that we have brain, that as a member of, a, of the human species, um, we come endowed, we come equipped with brains that are not agnostic about the kinds of information that we're getting um, out there in the world, but that instead seem primed or, or in some other way ready to process um, other, other people's mental states, ready or, and hungry to interact with uh, other people around us. So I'll leave you with that thought, and thank you very much.